Amazing. All right, we are in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23. We are studying the life of David. And uh, David has been in the cave of Adullam, uh, and he's been depressed. He's fleeing from Saul. His world is collapsing. Uh, people have come who are also distressed and have come there to the cave, and there are 400 men that are being pursued by Saul. David's family is now there, uh, and David is really, really reeling, and God is dealing with him. And so what we're going to see in this passage as we read it is we're going to see how does God get us out of our caves? What does God do? How is the hand of God evident in our lives when we are in a dark place? And how does God lift us out? And God does it in ways that you would never imagine. And you're going to see it here uh, in, in this uh, story. So let's begin with 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to start with the first 13 or so verses. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines. And what I love about David is you see that before he makes a move, he asks God, I know God, I know that I'm a warrior, I know that you've given me this gift, but should I go? Should I go? Is this a role that I should take? Because I'm not the king, all right? I know I've been anointed as the king, but Saul is the king. Is it my role to go and fight these invaders? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we are afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? And there you see, unfortunately, the impact of, of some misguided people who are not really wired in to God in terms of what they need to be wired in and, and speak to you in a way that the world might say to you, which basically is this, are you nuts? Look at you, you're in a cave. Everything is collapsing, and you're going to leave this cave and go into Judah and expose yourself uh, to, to further harm from Saul uh, and, and, and fight these Philistines? We've got to take care of ourselves. This doesn't make sense. And you see, that's counter to God's will. God's will is operating on a higher, an entirely different level. Verse 4, David, go back to God. He goes back to God. Once again, the D David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. How about that? I'm going to give you the Philistines. You obey me, and I'm going to honor you. You're going to see this victory. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to, uh, fled to David at Keilah. And that's important to understand because you know the ephod was used by the high priests uh, to get answers to issues from God. The ephod would be used to help understanding God's will. You don't see it too much after this, but the ephod was in wide use by the high priests. Verse 7, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and, and he said, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Keilah was what they call a fortified town. 
It was a military town, uh, and as a result, it had uh, walls and fortresses. Uh, and so the idea that Saul thought as a military person, David goes into Keilah, he's trapped. But you see, Saul didn't understand God because God would never allow Saul to take David. And as you're seeing here, as we study this for 15 years, Saul pursues David and never once does he apprehend him because God has greater things in mind for David. Uh, and so, verse 8, And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the, the town on account of me. He remembered what happened with the, with the priests at Nob. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. I love the heart of this man. Lord, I need to know what your will is. Will these people give me up? Will they turn me over? Will I be abandoned? Tell me, tell me, O oh God. And the Lord said, he will. He will, they will give you up. He will come after you. Again, David said, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. So this is an incredible passage where you see David rising up and going to a town to save the town because they're going to be under attack from the Philistines. Uh, and that God used the Philistines in this area. He used it to bring David out of the cave of depression, out of the cave of low point. Uh, and, and so it's interesting to see how God works and it's interesting to see how David's response was. Uh, and, and if you think about it, and you think about yourself as you, as you ponder this, when you're feeling low, you're feeling down, you're feeling depressed, when you, you come to terms with the fact that it seems like nobody is, is there supporting you, and it would have been so easy for David to say, ah, let Saul take care of it. He's the king. That's not my responsibility. But you see how David's heart was so in tune with God and God recognized that the way to get David out of the cave, to get him to focus on things other than his personal state, was to look for the welfare of others. Uh, and so you see that here in this passage. And so here's the thing, as you understand this. Uh, we know that at this time, David was writing several psalms. One of them was Psalm 142, in which David said in that psalm, I am overwhelmed by the pressure. Uh, he said, nobody cares about me. I feel very low and my soul is in a prison. He also wrote Psalm 57, declaring that he has set his heart to be steadfast in trusting and obeying and serving God. So the lesson here for us is this, that as men of God, we're going to be tempted, we're going to suffer, we're going to be persecuted at times, and you will go through low times. I don't want you to think that because you're a Christian, because you've given your heart to God, that all you are is wa walking on rose petals right into heaven. All right? It's not all about glory. It's not all about rose petals. It's not all about the high times. All right? As I always say to you, how did it work out for this first 11 
guys. And you know that all 11 of them were at some point martyred. Only John escaped martyrdom, even though they tried to kill him in a vat of boiling oil. And so you recognize that this is part of the walk as a Christian. You're going to go through hard times. And so here it is. Can't get any harder than this. Everything is collapsed. His world is collapsed. His family is there. They're all collapsing together. He doesn't see any way out. And so now God releases his power through us in ministry. How? He directs David to go to Keilah. Get up and go to Keilah. Effectively, what that is, it's the message that when you take the focus off yourself and you focus on others on the outside, God lifts you up. When you stop dwelling on your problems, stop dwelling on yourself, and recognize that God has placed you here to be a benefit to others, and when you step out and exercise that, God lifts you up and empowers you. That's how God got him out of the cave. That's how God lifted him up. And so what does that mean? It means that God recognizes that in order to get us out of our dark zone, we have to resist the darkness, and the way we resist the darkness is to take the focus off ourselves and to focus on other people in need. All right? He focused on other people in need, the people of Kayla who were troubled, who were about to be invaded. And so when we do this, when we step up and we embrace the purpose of the Lord in our lives, when we do this, uh, you see the power of God uh, manifested in a magnificent way and doing this with, with David. And so this is so, so key to me. And so now the question becomes, I've done this. I've honored you, God. I've done what you said. I've stepped out in faith. I've lifted you up. I've protected these people. And now these people who you protected are going to turn against you. How can that happen? How can that happen? It's because they're humans. We live in an evil world. All right? Often good uh, gets evil returned for it. Uh, and so the question that many of you are probably asking right now is why would God, why would God use David uh, to step forward uh, and do this act for these people when in fact they would return that act of kindness and intervention by God with evil? Why would that happen? Why would God allow that to happen? Well, there's a couple of reasons why I believe God God allowed this to happen and why God wanted David to go and do this, even though God knew what was going to happen. The first answer in this is what I call present satisfaction, meaning this. God wants us to extend mercy to people that need mercy, even if the mercy is not going to be returned. Um, and one of the things that happened here when David did this and David stepped out uh, to protect the people of, of Keilah, is that they took possession of all the livestock that, that the Philistines had. And so as a result of that, David, who was not being fed, who didn't have provision, suddenly is well provisioned. God provided it. He provided it through the Philistines. He wouldn't have had that had not God brought him into Keilah. And so you see that. We call, what I call that uh, is uh, God taking care of our needs. And there's, there's a verse that talks to us about that in terms of how Jesus speaks. Look at Luke chapter 6. 
And you know I always want to be able to tie the Old Testament and the New Testament together. It's one Bible. One Bible. Luke chapter 6. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. How do you like that? Give, give, and it will be given to you. And this, this version there that I've just given you is effectively uh, the story of a man having an apron and in which the seeds are in the apron and they're actually so abundant that the seeds are falling out all over the ground. When you give of yourself, because God has directed you to give, God pays the greatest dividends in the world. I can't begin to tell you the blessings that will pour into your life when you serve God and give according to what God wants. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time, about will, about love, about mercy, about the full panoply of all the Christian gifts that we have and the fruit in our spirit. When you give, when God tells you to give and extend yourself, God pays enormous dividends. And so even if the people that you gave to or extended yourself to do not appreciate what you have done, God knows. And let me ask you something. Who would you rather get paid back from, people in this world or the God of the universe? I mean, is there any debate on that issue? I know where I would rather be paid back. I would rather God puts it on my account and recognizes that I'm trying to do his will. All right? So don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged because you think you tried to do what God's will is for somebody and they didn't appreciate it. They didn't extend their, their love towards you. Look, it's a weak world. We've got to pray for people. I mean it. We, we, we have to pray for people. It's enormous when you see the, the deficit in people's lives. Secondly, God recognized that our faith grows when we extend our faith on behalf of others. Your own faith grows. When you extend it, you see what happens when you extend your faith. One of the examples that I give there is in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. One of the great stories in the New Testament. And in that story, you see here that Jesus is tired and hungry uh, and depleted and sends his disciples into town to get food. And Jesus waits at the, at the well because he knows that there is an eternal appointment to be made. And the Samaritan woman comes to that well. And here she is, totally despised, at the bottom of the, of the moral food chain. She so had seven husbands, a person leaving, living with a man now. She still wasn't married. Obviously, she came out in the middle of the day at the well when no self-respecting woman would do that because she wanted to be away from everybody else. I'm sure they judged her continually. And she comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And as she comes face to face to Jesus Christ, she has a life-changing appointment in which Jesus tells her that he knows about her life and that she can have eternal life. And she comes to realize that she's in the presence of the Messiah, a Samaritan woman, not a Jew, a Samaritan woman reviled. You see how God is. Now, what happened to her? Here's the extent of why I'm giving you this lesson. What happened to her was this. She was so moved by what God had done for her, she goes back into town 
to the very people that despised her and judged her and reviled her. And she says, I just met a man who knew everything about me. I believe he is the Messiah. This is the first Gentile evangelist in the New Testament. I call her a Gentile because Samaritans weren't considered Jews. And so what happens? She gives of herself to a town that reviled her. She opens herself up to people that despised her and repudiated her. She extends love, the message of hope, to people who probably weren't interested in the message of hope, the Samaritans. And yet when she did this, when she did this, the people of the town were so inspired that this message came from this woman, so inspired that the entire town came out. The entire town came out and came to see Jesus. And what do we know? We know that in that story, the entire town came to salvation. Can you imagine? An entire town in Samaria comes to accept Jesus Christ because some despised woman gave of herself, lifted herself up from her own despair, and extended herself to people. That's the message of hope to you today. That's what God wants. You want to be lifted out of your despair. You want to be lifted out of the darkness. God expects you to give and extend yourself, to talk about what Jesus is doing for you, to reach out to others. And we have so many people here that are doing that in so many ways, going to prisons and, and going to St. Matthew's house and cooking for people and extending themselves and visiting in hospitals. This is what God wants. The more you focus on other people's needs, the less you're going to focus on your own problems. That's exactly how God works. All right? This, this is the very earliest manifestation of psychology 101. But it's God's psychology. All right? This isn't man's psychology. It's God's psychology. And so you see this. God recognizes that when you do this, that when you do this and you extend yourself, not only are you blessing others, and God is going to pour blessings into your life, but your own faith will grow. And you can imagine what it had to be like for that woman to see suddenly this entire town being evangelized because of her. The second reason I believe that God wanted David to do this is what I call in my outlined external remuneration. Uh, and that's evident if you take a look at Matthew chapter 5. Turn there, please. External remuneration, Matthew 5. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Let me just stop and say, read that verse again to yourself. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. When people do that because you are aligned with Jesus. When they say evil about you because you are aligned with Jesus. I want to assure you that Jesus is going to pour enormous blessings into your life. Really. Continue on in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward 
in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. How do you think David felt? Lord, you sent me to Keilah. I saved them. Now they're persecuting me. They're persecuting me. They're going to turn me over to Saul. How do you think he felt? And yet God speaks so clearly. Great is your reward. Blessed are you. When I send you someplace, I ask you to do something. And if people don't accept you, your, your word is not accepted, you speak to somebody and it's repudiated. You, act, you give an act of kindness, and the act of kindness is, is not extended back. Uh, God is speaking to you today to tell you, you don't stop. You continue to do it. Because you're doing it for God. You don't do it for people. We don't do anything for people, really. Honestly. I mean, I love you guys. I really do. I have a heart for you guys. But I'm telling you, I'm here doing what I do because I'm doing it for God. I know God has called me to do this. And whether there's three people here or 300, God has called me to do it. And so I have to obey God. And, and even if somebody says, you know what, you, you stink. Really, you're, you're lousy. What makes you think you can get up and, and speak about the Bible? I know who you are. I remember you from New Jersey. I remember you in New Jersey. I saw what you did to people in court. Now you, you. When did you become so holy? Remember when I told you I'm preaching to myself? Don't you think those are the kind of words that I hear in my head? Don't you think I hear those kind of words? And it's only when I recognize truly. And I know you hear those kind of words. I know that you people go through things like that when you're serving God and all of a sudden, you know, the voice of Satan, and that's what it is, really, you know. All of a sudden, these, these innocuous things come in. Who are you? What are you trying to prove? You're trying to lift yourself up? You're a righteous man. You righteous? Come on, John. I know you. I know where you are. And so I want you to know, understand something. God knows that. God sees those thoughts. Don't be put aside because those kind of things come into your head. God wants you to know he wants you to continue to serve him and to step out and to touch a world that is lost even when negativity comes back. You're not doing it for the people. You're doing it for him. Can I get an amen? amen. You're doing it for him. You're doing it for him. This is so important. And, and so, yes, people will betray you. Is that a shock? Oh, you're shocked. Really? You haven't lived long enough. You haven't lived long enough. That's all I can tell you. The world is full of people that will betray you, that will sell you down the tubes in a second. All right? Everything is good as long as you're below them. You understand that, right? Oh, yeah. Everything's good. But all of a sudden, if somebody's being blessed and you're being lifted up, oh, that guy needs to be knocked down. I don't like the fact that that guy's being lifted up. And that's when you see how the world acts. That's the spirit of the world. Yeah, you should be knocked down. And I want to tell you something. Don't let that spirit infect your service to God. You're called by God. David was called by God. David was anointed by God. God sent David to Keilah. God knew David had to get out of that cave. He couldn't stay in that cave forever. He couldn't dwell in that morass of evil and darkness. And the way to do it was to serve others, even if the others didn't deserve it. Because God holds them to account. Do you understand what I just said? You do the act of goodness, 
and you leave the judging to God. See, that's the problem with a lot of us. We like to be the judges ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah, they should be punished. They should be punished. We need punitive issues here. Now, God, God's not asking you to do that. That's not your role. Your role is to extend the love and mercy to a world that is lost and let God determine the ledger. And let me tell you something, God will determine the ledger. If you think these people of Keilah got away with it, they didn't get away with it. All right, God, God sees way down the line, so many ways. Uh, and so you see this. God, and so God will give you your reward. And the other reason that God understood that David had to step out of the, ga- of the cave is that God knew that David needed to extend mercy to people who needed mercy, even if they were not deserving of mercy. Can you think of anybody else who deserved mercy even though they weren't deserving of mercy? I'll raise my hand. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe me. Possibly you. All right. Possibly you. In other words, God was demonstrating you need to show a world what mercy is. And I've given mercy and grace and forgiveness to you. And so I want you to recognize that. Even though I've appointed you as king and you will eventually be sovereign, I want you to know as sovereign what it takes to have mercy and grace and why you need to do this for people who who maybe don't deserve it. Maybe don't deserve it. And so this is a poignant poignant passage. And I want to continue reading now uh, in the following verses in verse 14. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. He's he's fleeing again. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And take a note of that and underline it in your Bible. Here's Saul with all the resources of Israel, with all the armies and all the backup men going after David with thousands of men, and yet God is protecting David. Saul is not able to put his hands on David. Because it's not the will of God that that take place. 15. While David was at Horish in the desert of Zis, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Underline that, please. Helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horsh. I want to focus on the role of encourager. I want you to see how God gives a gift of encouragement. And I want to ask you that you honestly ask God to put that gift into your life. We need more encouragers. We need people who go into the lives of other people who are suffering, who are persecuted, who are lost, who can tell them and reach to them and tell them what God wants for them, to let them know that God holds them and affirms them. And as I study this passage, 
uh, it's very clear to me that God is using Jonathan in a powerful way. Now remember how unique this man Jonathan is. Jonathan would be king if David weren't around. When Saul goes, Jonathan's next up. But because he is such a godly man, in tune with the will of God, he recognizes that David is to be king, not Jonathan. Uh, and what a great gift that is to be, to be the kind of person that can see the gift of God in other people. I pray that we have those kind of gifts here. That when you see, that when you're in the presence of someone that you know has been gifted, that you lift them up and pray for them. That you do that. That you not be involved with spiritual jealousy. You don't see Jonathan going, man, God, how could you do this? How could you do this and take it away from me? I've been a good, a good Jew. Why would you do this? And yet he never says this. And so what does Jonathan do? He tells David first, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. God is with you. He will not be abandoned you. And then he assures David that in spite of all the efforts that his father is extending to find him, he will not succeed. That the will of God is that he will not exceed. And he does that, he says that to David based on his assurance of God. That it's God that's intervening. That it's God that is that's extending himself on behalf of David. And so Jonathan seeks to encourage David by assuring him of his submission and loyal service to him when David becomes king. How do you like that? When you become king, as you will become king, I will serve you. I will be your number two. I will bow to you. Uh, and, and I will be there to support you in everything that you do. And finally, Jonathan's loyalty is not a secret. How do you like that? His father knows. His father despises him for it. Um, and so you see this, this spirit of encouragement. And there are examples in the New Testament of what I believe is God's will in terms of encouragement. One of the great encouragers in the Bible is a man called Barnabas. Barnabas. And let me tell you why I, this is so. Barnabas was a guy who had a great ministry. Barnabas was a guy who was basically in charge of the Antioch church. Barnabas was a wealthy, generous man who had given greatly of his goods to, to the church. And so Barnabas was a guy who in every possible way was godly in every way, and God had blessed him. But there came a time when Barnabas recognized that there was a need. There was a need in the church. And so Barnabas went uh, to Tarsus in Turkey to find a guy who he knew would help the church, uh, a guy who had the gifts, a guy who was basically in his own cave because that's where Paul was. He'd been rejected by the church. The church wasn't interested in him. You could say to me, oh, how can this be? The church is rejecting the guy that writes two-thirds of the New Testament? Human beings, my friend. Human beings. Yes, even in church. There he was, rejected, an outcast. Now he's in a cave, basically in Tarsus, on his own. You don't see a word about Saul when you read the Scripture when it relates to those seven, eight, or nine years in solitude out there in Tarsus. And yet Paul, Barnabas goes and travels from Antioch to Tarsus to go and get Saul and to bring him back to make him his helper in the missionary effort. And what happens when he brings Saul back? Saul becomes the head of the team. You like that? What happened? 
I, I went to get you. I went to get you. You were nothing. You were there. Nobody knew who you were. I went to get you, and now there, you're the head? You understand? That's right. You're the head because you're in the presence of an enormous spiritual gift. And Barnabas bowed to the will of God. You understand? Barnabas bowed to the will of God. He wasn't envious. He wasn't jealous. He understood that God's will was on display here, that that's why he went to get him. This is an amazing thing. I want you also to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. This is early on in the Christian work, early on in the early days of the church. Um, and Paul has been now converted, uh, and the, the Holy Spirit has invested itself in Paul. Paul is full of wanting to serve God. Now he goes back to the Jerusalem church. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the fellow parishioners in the, Jew, in the Jerusalem church. I want you to get this picture. The last time you saw this guy, he was heading out of town to Damascus to imprison and persecute Christians. You remember him when he was here. You saw what he did to Christians. You saw how he imprisoned them and persecuted them. You saw what he did with Stephen. You saw what he did with Stephen. He was there when Stephen was stoned to death. The scripture tells us that Paul held the coats of the evildoers as they stoned Stephen to death. What does that mean? It means that he was approving of this martyrdom. And so now, now he comes back. Are you kidding me? This guy's a Christian? This guy's one of us? This can't be possible. I can't, I can't accept this. I know what he was before. There's no way this guy is part of us. And so what you see here is he's rejected. He's kept out. They don't want him to be part of the church. And now Barnabas steps up in an incredible way. And I want you to see this. Uh, look, look at, uh, uh, for, starting with verse 23, speaking about Paul. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Why? Because this guy was a problem to the Jews. All right? You can imagine a guy who had once been their cohort now speaking about Jesus. Uh, they conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Now, how do you think he felt? Lord, I've given everything that I have to you. I've turned it all over to you. My whole life is a shambles before. Lord, I'm serving you, and now I'm with your people. And they won't embrace me. They won't accept me. They will not take me as their own. Verse 27, this is an underline. This, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord Jesus and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached 
fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I want you to understand something. It was Barnabas that intervened. It was Barnabas that encouraged him. The Barnabas that said, you have a work. This is a great uh, disciple. He has a great future. And so he opened the door for Paul in the early church. But notwithstanding that, he was such a hot property, so reviled and hated that the early church said, we can't be with you. God bless you, brother. We can't be with you. And they packed him off to Tarsus. And there he stayed for what we know is eight or nine years. And so I want you to understand this. I want you to see the role of the encourager, why God wants you to be an encourager, and why this is important. And so I want to be able now to close and to bring this back next week. We'll continue this study next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you, Father, for the lesson that you've given us, for the words that you've brought to our hearts, Lord. I thank you for this, Lord. Embolden us. Let these words resonate in every way, Father. Be with our men. Protect them this week and bring them back safely to continue the study of your word next week. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.